All right. Hi, Dr. Didamo. Hello, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for your presence here today. Thanks for joining me. My, 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 my honor, my, my privilege. Thank you for having me. Yes, um, I would love to start with uh, a frequency first. Are you open to a brief meditation? Sure. Great. Dr. Dean, I'm gonna take the deepest breath that you have ever taken in your life. Just fill your body from the ground up. And as you begin to exhale slowly, ever so gently begin to blink your eyes closed. Softening your shoulders, softening your facial features. Every single sound that you hear guides you deeper into the space, interior space, where there exists only peace, only calm. Imagine roots emerging from the base of your spine, penetrating the earth's crust. grounding into Mother Earth. Each breath in lifts your spine to the sky. Your crown begins to open. Open and ready to receive. Pure white light entering your body through your crown, all the way to your fingertips, all the way down to your toes. Your belly space completely softened. And when you're ready, just bring some subtle movement back into your fingers and your toes, your shoulders. Never so slowly and gently begin to blink your eyes open. Thank you so much for being open to that. Well, you, I can't think anything uh, has ever been harmed by that. <laughs> <laughs> so we can only make anything better and I'm open to that. Beautiful. Dr. Didam, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of you. Well, you can start by calling me Peter. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> um, my, father, my father was Dr. Diadamo. Ah. <laughs> All right, Peter. Uh, you are a light leader that embodies, like, with, within you, there's family, there's society, there's community, and the world. Like within you that's ever ever expanding like to me you have such a a conscious and a powerful relationship with choice hmm. every word that you speak every every body of work that you dive into and that you share with humanity is for that purpose 
for people to access, to ascend, uh, to, to really um, live a life that they didn't know existed for them. Well, you know, that that is very, very kind of you. I think I just um, was fortunate enough to be um, to be around people who always looked at things differently. And so that became almost a kind of a normal behavior of mine. Like why, why take things for the way they are? <clears throat> you know, the other side is that I think, you know, reality belongs to those who have the most imaginative version of what comes next. <laughs> so, I mean, I always think that, well, since the universe is unfolding, <clears throat> it has no other way of understanding itself other than through our own uh, linked experiences. Uh, it probably would prefer to have the most entertaining version of reality out there. So I strive to make that mine. Thank you. Thank you for having that awareness and really embodying that and doing the work and putting it out there. The other side of me is just kind of a frustrated artist as well. So, you know, I, I, think, I get that. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think a lot of what I do is, is um, you know, I don't, I don't ever forget that the first four letters of my last name will give you Dada, which... Uh, <laughs> Of course, a wonderful artistic mover from the 20s, which just dis disassembled everything. So um, I've always been an, an a disassembler and a reassembler. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's always because I think there's always been since I was a kid, I was always in the presence of people who always tried to want to take things apart, figure out how they worked. So mm. that's always been part of my my modus operandi, you know, mm, which, which brings me to um, to this. It was a gift oh, that like you <laughs> and Martha uh, gifted our, our son. And um, he uh, he stuffed some nutraceuticals and some Arcona almonds in it. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect place for that. Yeah. Um, there, before, before we move on, there's a couple of boys that, that want to say hi to you, that want to visit with you. Mm -hmm. All right. He brings us everywhere with him. <laughs> Come say hi, my love. Oh, oh what a treat. Hey, hello there, handsome. Say hi, Uncle Peter. Say hi. Uh, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're uh, staying safe. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. Good to see you. What's oh, happening? Yeah. Nutraceuticals and your Marcona almonds. <laughs> I'm painting a Volkswagen. Oh, that very color. <laughs> really? And, uh, <clears throat> What's this little thingy? <laughs> Maybe when he gets a little older, I'll give him one of the ones I've got hanging around, just taking up space. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Did oh you hear that? Gosh. I don't even know what to do anymore. I got so many books, oh. <laughs> Okay, say, 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 love you, Peter. See you later. Hi. Hi and bye. Fist pump. Okay. 
Well, many of the, the viewers here will, will not be aware of my past history with uh, Dr. Partovi, who uh, I think, as I, I alluded to early on, <clears throat> is kind of like on a professional level, pretty much a kind of a, like a son kind of person. I think I've seen him go through so many stages in life and, and now he's, um, you know, doing such amazing stuff out there and he's teamed up with you and I think that makes a real nice uh, partnership. Um, and uh, he, he uh, started initially on my bulletin boards a million years ago before he was still going to law school back then. Yeah. And, um, but he was following the diet and he was a very um, into the science. And then, uh, well, over the years, I mean, he went to, first he wanted to, you know, try medical school, but they didn't feel very, well, you know all this. He didn't feel very close to that emotionally. And then he went to naturopathic school. And, uh, and then I think he found his, uh, his true calling, so. He, he uh, did, yeah. It's a, an expression that, um, really comes from uh, deep within him. It's not, my, my, my youngest child is now studying to be a naturopathic doctor. Yes, in yes. second year at Bridgeport. <clears throat> and you know, there's a part of me that is just so protective of thinking that, you know, what kind of a person has to, what, what kind of a person do you have to be to be able to, to do this and still maintain your, your sanity and mm -hmm. your, your um, capacity to, to, to not be broken and disillusioned by the misapprehension that we deal with as a profession. I mean, sometimes I read things that attempt to describe what, what unscientific frauds we are. And I think, who are they talking about? I mean, they, they seem to be describing somebody, but it doesn't seem like it describes anybody I know. And yet this is what's being described as what I am. And then you say, oh, I don't, do I want my kid to be, you know, doing this? I mean, you know, because it's a great profession, but, you know, it'll break your heart at least three times in the course of your life. So I yeah, mean, well, I, I acknowledge her for taking that step, for being that champion. And to yeah. well, you know, my father wanted me to be a medical doctor, too, because, I mean, he had had his fair share of persecution. And I kind of gave him the answer that I think she gave me, which was if everybody did that, then no quality people would do this. This would be full of all the people who couldn't do that. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, it's a great profession and uh, it's doing really important things. And, you know, we look at this crisis that we're in and it so reminds me of the, um, the early eighties with, well, mid eighties actually with the AIDS crisis. And here was a, a perfect example of um, how the, the medical system by design could not react appropriately to a new disease that was lethal and moved in a very accelerated time frame. So you had, if you remember, there was a thing called ACT UP and they had a whole yeah. bunch of groups because they were all advocating the fact that yes, we, we all love double blind placebo controlled studies where we can feel multi-center trials and results. But if those results are gonna take three and a half years and I'm gonna be 
dead in four months, it doesn't really solve my problem, okay? Yeah. It solves your intellectual dilemma about whether or not this is workable or not. So one of the things we see with COVID is a kind of a return to this fact that the overwhelming structure of the, how we gain medical information has never come to grips with how to deal with an acute, lethal, short-term new disease crisis. And I think naturopaths are really good at what you would call ad hoc empiricism. You know, I guess some people might say you throw stuff at the wall and you see what sticks, but, and, but there's an art to that, you know, and it isn't, you, 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 you wouldn't get very far if you just threw everything up against the wall. You have to have some degree of discretion about this. So, you know, I think what um, we did back then, and, and I was happy to make a difference. I mean, I lost quite a few people during that time. I, I tried to treat a lot of AIDS patients and, and they died. But a few of them actually, by cobbling together a combination of things, were able to make it to the next stage where the second tier of treatment, the protease inhibitors and the AIDS cocktails and things could get them a reasonable quality of life. And I think it's the same thing here because you know, everybody's trying to see what works for a person who's an extremist with COVID. In other words, uh, acute respiratory distress, uh, the ubiquitous cytokine storms, the hemovascular consequences, uh, system-wide failure, you know. But the real point is perhaps maybe much more simpler than that. It's, it's what's the technology available to prevent people from having to wonder whether or not they are ever gonna to get to that stage. How do we keep them out of that stage? And right now the current level of information that we have courtesy of the government is um, stay home until you can't. That, that's their entire therapeutic strategy. Um, maybe if you have a fever, you know, take a little Tylenol, make sure you drink a little water, uh, but this is, this is a great opportunity for people to, to, to do the things that are going to help modulate the course of that and steer themselves towards a more benign um, outcome or more benign experience. And then on top of it all, you have all the things you can do, you know, to modulate the quality of the exposure. You know, we know that people get hit really hard with heavy doses frequently, and those are going to give them the big problems, right? That's why healthcare workers get so sick because they get repeated mm -hmm. doses of, of heavy levels of viral load. But if you can do things to coordinate how essentially you can minimize your viral load, control the exposure, then you maybe you can help engineer a kind of a, a moderate case. And that's, you know, again, going to basically give you the best of all outcomes, which would be, uh, you know, long-term protection. Will you, um, will you speak to our government directly, Peter? Well, sure. Like what, what is the, the overarching, like the <clears throat> strongest message that you have, like wielding uh, the power of your voice? The strongest message? Mm -hmm. the, the fact that our numbers are, are seeming to plateau. The fact that the number of ventilators looks like it's gonna be sufficient or if anything, maybe in excess. The fact that we are seeing the secondary 
clusters being milder than the large clusters in New York, all proves that at a certain point in time, the American public decided that they didn't really trust the government anymore. They were just gonna go inside and stay there. Mm -hmm. And then you have, of course, the whole idiotic thing with masks, which is uh, masks don't work. exclusively looking at the mask as a device to prevent you from getting infected, but realizing or not realizing that there's a nonlinear relationship that when you are in a community of people wearing masks, there's something that's being achieved that's greater than the simple act of you putting a mask on to protect yourself. There's a, um, a, a sort of a second level or second tier of protection. Well, what does this say to the government regulators, health and human services, FDA, CDC, WHO, and away we go. And that all these people who were paid to be our experts, they uh, were, you know, talk about a learning curve, okay? If you're an expert, you're not supposed to have a learning curve. That's why you're an expert. That's why they pay you, okay? You're supposed to have done what needs to be done to understand this situation. And if you look at every way we've handled this, it turns out, and this was once used to describe, it turns out, I think it was the British Army. They said the British Army could be described as lions who were led by donkeys. And we are at this point, lions who are being led by donkeys. We have an apparatchnik environment with all the health bureaucracies. We are in a a situation where policy is driven by insurance companies and not by physicians. Uh, We have a healthcare system that considers disease, the metaphor for uh, the absence of health, but health itself is, 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 is some mythical thing that's achieved by simply not being sick. We have a, uh, uh, a political environment here that uh, uh, allows corporations to set a policy. We have uh, advertisements that drive 24 arrow cable news, which are basically completely controlled by big pharma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, what else would you like to know about how I think about the government? Uh, thank, you, thank you for taking a stand, Peter. Thank you I'm for- little, You know, I, I look at this all and think, I don't really want anything from the government, to be honest with you. I would love to be simply left alone. That would be my greatest desire. Um, I understand that, you know, they make the water come out of my pipes and, and they, they make the traffic lights go on and off and they do all sorts of other cool things. So I understand I have to, I have to pay for some of that. But it's amazing how many decisions are made about our lives that are arbitrary and we have no control over And you look at this perspective here and we have gotten from the beginning and I started following this. I asked myself a very simple question sometime at the end of December, beginning of January. A a very simple question. Why are all those people in China walking around in spacesuits? Okay, this is not normal. Okay, people don't like go down a street fumigating a street in spacesuits unless something seriously problematic is occurring. And then, you know, you start thinking, all right, let's, let's add another fact to this whole thing. You know, the new year and the travel and, and, and everybody was just at the strategy was that it, we, this is just too phantasmagorical to ponder 
so I'm not going to think about it. And so, but it was like, you know, yes, it. You assume that there's just, it's it's just too mind-boggling to think what the consequences are, but because nobody was courageous enough to contemplate those, we were left with the mind-boggling consequences, versus having entertain those consequences in a, in a in a manner that would have allowed us to prepare allow us to get everything in order to allow the public to be brought in step by step in an honest transparent fashion none of that occurred and it was like people lied every step of the way mass are no good mass are good you know it's like uh, this is you know controllable it's no better than the flu it's like so at the end of it all, I think the greatest casualty here was, was, was honesty and, and, and the belief that the government was anything other than a, a bunch of very, very small, intelligent people who spend a lot of time being idiots. And ultimately the reality was, is we saw, we got a heavy dose of, of just how small this could be. And then we, we ask ourselves, you know, well, they say typically you get the government you deserve. And so theoretically, I suppose we deserve this. So, but the reality is, is that not a lot of people are gonna die from an actuarial standpoint, you know? I mean, we talk about how many World Trade Centers and it's, oh yeah, it's terrible, it's 10,000. Listen, if one of those people was your grandmother, that's a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that ultimately, you know, if we're looking at 200,000 or 100,000 or whatever, those are numbers that can be encompassed in any number of different ways without raising an eyebrow. The number of people who, I don't know, crash their cars, the number of people who eat themselves into the grave. I mean, there's, there's just, this is not a 50 million death count like you had with the Black Plague back in the 13th century. Where it took a third of the population off the planet. But still, and this is, you might think I'm trying to minimize this, but I'm actually trying to say, in spite of the fact these are not great numbers, every single one of those deaths was preventable. Thank so, you. Thank you. It's like, so yeah, it, it, it wasn't a lot of people, but because you're, you're an idiot and because you're, 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 you're just a, an apparatchnik who can't see above the edge of their, of their desk, this occurred. And, you know, this is the situation we have at this point, you know, and, and you look at this and you think, well, where, where are we? We have a healthcare system that's clearly ca- un- incapable of, of dealing with these things. It, it never was structured for it, you know, so here we are. It's back at the end of it all. What are we back to? Well, make your own mask, take your own vitamins, try to exercise a little bit, try to get a good night's sleep. Well, tell me how much of that was the result of the government acting on your behalf and how much of it you had to figure out on your own. Mm, I'm, I'm going to go back to that word preventable. And I'll start with uh, asking you, uh, so about four to six months before I conceived um, my son, I was on the blood type diet and discovered it's um discovered a whole new level and whole new world of vitality and aliveness. Uh, and then when he was conceived, I said, okay, it's time to step up my game, like to become 98, 95, 100% compliant. And uh, I had a fantastic um, experience of pregnancy. Um, and he's, he's two, almost three now. 
and he's been on the blood type diet since you know he was in my womb mm -hmm. um six months of breast milk and um we didn't introduce grains until he, until he was two what's he is he a typo like he uh, is yes we're all typos okay. um what what does that peter what does that make available for him and his life Well, you know, the interesting thing I've always thought about the diet, and again, this is, it, it's yet another one of those things that in its, in its, in its entirety, it, it doesn't fit nicely into the healthcare environment because again, we want to have those double blind placebo controlled multi-center trials those are terrific for drugs but and they're and they're usable for things that the effect is very difficult to to, to discern so in other words if i if i want to give this drug and it has you know improves the life of 25 percent of the people who take it i probably do need to get the placebo out of there even to see that mm -hmm. but there's a famous book that i studied when i was in school it's called the logic of medicine by a guy named murphy in the middle of the book, he just put it flat out. He says, you do not need a double-blind placebo-controlled study to find out if it's raining outside. You know, your hand will do a very nice job of that. So if we look at it from the perspective of the way the system fell in and fell out, uh, we see an interesting technology that sort of takes our paradigm and pretty much can't can you can only get so far with it so let me explain there are things in this world that are known as heuristics and a heuristic is simply a, a rule of thumb that's good enough to get the job done most of the time it's not perfect but if you use it more often than not it actually does work so for instance, if, you know, I use this example with my students, if you say to somebody, at first you don't succeed, most people know that the way you follow that up is that you try, try again. That's pretty good advice most of the time. If something didn't work, you just try at it and come at it a different way. Every once in a while, it's a piece of terrible advice. Sometimes there's a, a, a time when you just have to say, well, I don't, this is not gonna work. It, obviously, if you try to, uh, uh, you know, to commit suicide and fail, you should not try again. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that as a heuristic, it has limitations, but in the big picture, mm -hmm. it serves a purpose because it's just so simple. Okay. And just so, well, a lot of people would say just so full of common sense. So if you look at the diet, okay, what is the, what is the first thing the diet sort of forces you to surmount? Well, the idea that there's one single unitary diet that works in everybody, okay? Now, 25 years ago, this was not an easily embraceable theory because most people had very unitary ideas about things. Everybody should be a vegan, everybody should be a paleo, everybody should be a this and that, everybody should just forget everything and do the standard American diet. There's all these unitary little silos. Then something comes along and says, okay, well, maybe they're all good, but maybe we think about who they're most appropriate for. You know, this person does this, this person. So it becomes like a signpost. You go that way, you go that way. And it turns out 
40 years ago, my father started asking himself, could he find something that he could use as like a discriminant, something that he could use to differ people? And it turned out that blood types were actually the, one of the few things he could test for easily enough in his office. And it was genetically based. So he was thinking, okay, here I've got something that varies genetically, it's reliable. Uh, it isn't like saying, okay, everybody who's, you know, five feet or under does this and everybody who's, you know, five feet or over does that. These are genetic markers that are very distinct. And he just simply started looking at the outcomes of his blood typing and seeing who was complaining about eating this and that. And he came up with a kind of a simplistic system. And then 20 years later, I kind of just kept adding to it and tacking on observations. And I, I must admit, I first thought that he was kind of a little eccentric with his, his system. Uh, but when I was in school, I quickly discovered that there was all sorts of articles that clearly could show physiology differences and digestive differences and things. So now we are in the world of nutrigenomics. Okay, it's 2000 and what, 20? Mm -hmm. So now the idea that everybody's got a genetically different diet, I mean, you could, what is that company that ladies always on TV? It's like, uh, they, they talk now about personalizing your diet. But when I first released this diet, I was basically hung out to dry. I mean, when that book came out, I was hung out to dry, not by conventional doctors, but dietitians, nutritionists, naturopaths. Some people loved it. Some people really couldn't stand it and thought it was just the worst thing. And, it, 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 and yet here was the other part of the side of the, of the thing that they said paradigmatically is, is where we, everything ha, ha, sort of came to rest here was that at that time, back in the 1990s, I actually wrote what was an early version of an internet bulletin board. And this is where I first met Ryan. Um, and I, I remember when I worked in my father's office, I would work in his pharmacy cleaning and stuff. And right adjacent to the pharmacy was a room where he, people would get some therapies. And you'd always hear them talking. You know, you'd always hear them, well, what did he do with you? Oh, he's got you taking that. Yeah, I use that for a while. It's really, really good. So they would, they would do this group therapy on each other. So I realized that actually when my book came out, I really needed to create a place where people could show up and actually hear from other people that they weren't crazy. Okay. Yeah. That reading this book and believing what this could do for them and trying it and seeing that it worked was gonna allow them to see that there were other people who might've had that same experience. And even though in their excitement, when they brought it up to their family members and got told to just keep their mouth closed, nobody was interested, that here was another place where they could find some, some justification and some validation. So the other side of the coin was that in the midst of all the things that people who, the various nutritional deities who had problems with this was a huge growing base of people who were just trying it and finding that it helped them. And it persisted to this day. I mean, it's amazing how pervasive these communities of people are, and they are diehards, and they are extremely defensive about this. And, 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 and I think the only thing that I ever did to, that was my part, was in those 20 some odd years, I just tried to, tra to stay true to what a, what a person like me could mean to a reader like that. In other words, I wasn't going to do infomercials. I wasn't going to do things that would somebody would say to themselves, oh my God, you know, this is 
that there was there was something noble about this that just required that I adhere to a certain set of standards about my own professional behavior. So, and, and, and this is why the diet, well, there's two reasons why things that I do never get very big. Um, number one was that I don't tend to have that final kill urge from a marketing sense. And so, I never go in for the kill, the final kill, where you sit down with the venture capitalists and they tell you that they're gonna put you on you know, NPR. And that the problem and the reason why I never do that is I'm usually onto something else by that point and that's got all my excitement and I'm just not interested in discussing something that I no longer consider to be my prime interest. So, and, and this really was the case with, um, anything I've ever done in terms of designing a product. I mean, we had marketing people who would say, I can sell anything you can design in three years when other people start making this as well. And there's some conversation about it, but right now you design stuff that's just so off the mark that we can't quite figure out how to tell people what it does or what, how to use it or even what's made out of. So if you look at like, the blood type diet and here and here here was well, the first of all, thank, thank you for embodying that um, that humility um and i think that's the the basis of why your your work spreads the way that it does and you have diehards um because yeah. you're you're constantly like you said constantly in in the background um you here's a body of work you know that we have access to and you're on to the next um and like all the bioinformatics platforms that you created. And so thank you. Thank you for- yeah, I spent a lot of time teaching, you know, um, and that's, as Ryan can, well, well, well knows, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big, um, it's a big obligation, but it, it, it's such an opportunity, you know, to, to, to start, to help start somebody at a place where you're, you're giving out, they're just starting, you know, they're just getting yeah. started. And um, I did a lot of work with um, University of Bridgeport. And uh, then, yeah, then I got into, well, I've always been writing computer stuff since I was a kid. Ah. So um, I had a um, Apple II when I was a young man. <laughs> and I learned how to program that. I actually took computer programming in high school. And then I kind of lost interest in it. I mean, I did a lot of uh, engineer type computer stuff then, but when the internet came around, I said, well, this is much, this, this is interesting. I think I'll get started in this again. And so, um, you know, between diet software and, uh, well, I did a lot of genomic software with Opus and those programs and things. And then microbiome, we have a program and there's supposed to be another one coming out that looks at what's called a metabolome. Uh, but yes, I mean, this is, you know, this is the stuff that, it, you know, makes me get up in the morning. Mm. Thank you. You're <laughs> um, I, I feel called to talk about your wife for a bit. Oh, uh, a girlfriend. Yes, yes. And so that's, that's where uh, you, you refer to her as the girlfriend. And yeah. Uh, as, uh, yeah, as, as a woman, you know, just following that when you make posts about the girlfriend, uh, it's very, it's just extraordinarily endearing that you, you would see her newly mm -hmm. every day. Uh, that you I'm, I'm married, I'm married to a remarkable woman. Yes. And uh, we, 
um, have, well, we're on, I don't know, year 37. I'd probably get in trouble because I don't know the exact year. It's just a <laughs> lot of years. Um, and we have two lovely kids and we have, I mean, here's an interesting thing. We've been, you know, doing what everybody else is doing, which is this, you know, social distancing or whatever you want to call it. And I think uh, we saw my younger daughter once who dropped off some groceries in five weeks. And it's all it's ever been is the two of us, you know, in this whole time. And it's just a very easy, um, uh, we work well together, you know. Um, I don't think uh, I would have accomplished near any, anywhere near any of the stuff I did if I didn't have, um, you know, this, this woman, uh, this partner and, and, you know, I mean, and, and I, I guess ultimately it was, it's, it's, it's just the, the believability factor. Somebody, somebody can, can believe in you. That's a, that's a big thing, you know? Uh, so, you know, the amazing thing is that I, and I often joke about this is that on a, on a lot of levels, we have almost nothing in common. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually maybe the big secret to our success but you know the fact that we don't have much in common means that we are capable very easily of supporting the desire of that other person to mm. to, to luxuriate in those things even if they're not the things that we would luxuriate and matter of fact it's maybe a little bit easier to let them do that because it, it's not something that we need to to have a role in so that that ambiguity or that that um uh, not indifference, but uh, I mean, she's always, th this is, this is the person who told me that I should get a garage to work on Volkswagen. I mean, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, or, um, you know, when, when the kids, I mean, just so many wonderful uh, things about her that I, I could go on and on, but uh, this, you know, you live a charmed life sometimes. I mean, I look at my life and I think, all right, tell my kids, this is this is as good as it gets. I mean, you go anywhere historically in the past and it was terrible. And even now, as bad as things are now, <clears throat> I was watching something on the History Channel and it was like black and white film of the British bombing some part of Germany. And it's like all these things are lighting up on the screen. And obviously that's where the incendiaries are like hitting people's houses and stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't so bad considering what they, they were sitting there, you know, social distancing and waiting to get bombed. I mean, it, it's, so we can kind of find some, some way of being able to get ourselves out of this. And, 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 and I think that I, um, I, I, like, I like the idea that, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've studied history my whole life. As a matter of fact, uh, was once, my parents were once told that by an astrologer that I was supposed to be a history teacher. And it turns out, if you look at the Black Plague, uh, you know, it caused an incredible social disruption in Europe. Right. Because at a certain point, you had, there was nobody to do anything. So it broke the entire mechanisms behind feudalism. Because you couldn't, all of a sudden, people could say, oh, go screw yourself. You're, you're either going to pay me some money or I'm not going to do it. So all of a sudden you had the ability of people now all of a sudden to, to actually wage earn, which is, was a big revolution. And it all of a sudden, mm -hmm. because that you could have maybe the stirrings of other things, but it, it was that tumultuous, terrible thing that so upended the social order that, uh, you know, and, and it probably would have 
not occurred if something unfortunately is cataclysmic as that. So you look at this and you think to yourself, well, what's the aftermath of COVID? And it's gonna be an upending of the social order. I and mean, ultimately you're going to see um, changes in how people relate to their role in the world and how everything is structured in terms of how people fit together in societies and, and how decisions are made. I, I think that's the bigger thing. I mean, we make decisions based upon what corporations need to achieve. That's the deciding factor in most places. Mm -hmm. Corporations need to do this and so it gets done because they, they can put the, the wheels in play and get that kind of stuff done. It's gonna change. Uh, and I think it's going to be better. And I think that. Do you, do you think uh, on that, do you think it will be a, um, that it will require a, a listening, like an awareness to actually have that happen? Um, or do you think by default uh, that it's already beginning to happen in response to? I think, it's, I think, it, I think it's happening because. Um, You know, Frank Zappa said that politics was the entertainment division of big business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so ultimately the idea that we are entertained by politics, and I'm I'm not a socialist. I'm a I'm a happy capitalist in general things. I I believe that uh, you know productivity is a good thing, and there's all sorts of things that come from innovation. So that's not my problem. But uh, we we have oligarchies in our country now that basically are making big decisions about things and they don't really care what we think about those things. They're gonna just more or less go ahead with their agenda. And that's gonna be insurance and pharma and all the things that basically drive the uh, mechanisms on Capitol Hill with lobbyists and power. You know, there's a thing called rent seeking, which is, you know, just how people get things done in Washington. And you think about this, um, what we spend, what we spend as as a country, uh, money on. Okay, so we spent what a couple of trillion dollars in Iraq. I can't see we got a whole lot done. Okay, we messed up those poor people's lives pretty bad, and uh, and at the end of it all, you know, they you know we're hated more there than we probably were before. So tell me exactly what was accomplished other than the fact that just a huge amount of people, a large number of people got really rich. Okay. So, and, and since, you know, I'm not certain essentially if I would have normally thought that they deserved it any more than they did. You know, you look at our profession, naturopathy, naturopathic medicine. It's, it's a medicine that says, get smart. It's a medicine that says, know yourself. It's a medicine that says information is power. It's an, it's, it says, take responsibility. Um, and under the best of all uh, uh, circumstances, this would drive the cost of healthcare down to maybe 20% of what it is. Mm -hmm. If people just worked in a naturopathic framework as, 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 a, as an operating guideline, just, to, just fit that into your life and kind of work on it there. Eat well, relax. You know, don't kill yourself with things that don't matter. Take care of your family. Be happy. Get a good night's sleep. Drink some water. You know, learn the first signs of when something's off and then treat yourself. Use the healthcare system for what it was designed for. We could drop, 
cost of healthcare down to 15, 20%, and we'd have a healthier population. We'd have a more productive population. But who do you think is going to be excited about that? That's, that's you know, the, the, the buggy whip manufacturers of the world are not going to like hearing this because, mm. you know, they want to keep making buggy whips or high top shoes, you know, take your pick, anything that no longer has a pur purpose, but persists, you know, like an appendix. Although we, we were taught an appendix had no purpose. Apparently it has a purpose, but uh, the reality of this whole thing is that we, we've got to make some changes. You know, do we have to all be democratic socialists or whatever? I don't know, but we, we need to put the smart people in charge of making some decisions. We need to let people uh, understand how to think about ideas from a probability standpoint. Everybody go on Facebook and you'll see that it, it's a, the feeds on Facebook are utter garbage. They're, they're just every little thing that could be incorporated into somehow or another making this thing bigger and more inflamed than it already is. And ultimately we have to sort of understand that we even have, as a species, we haven't evolved to understand how to handle our ability now to process information like this. So you can see what's going on now is all this information is just corroding everything. Right. All, the, all the COVID misinformation that just gets propagated and shared, it's, it, just, it just corrodes. All the political misinformation that gets m misapprehended and, you know, it, and it's, it's like, we're going to have to sometimes somebody's got to figure out a way to get people to understand somebody like Richard Feynman, who said, you know, how to be a good scientist. Assume that you're wrong. OK, start from the assumption that you're wrong and proceed from there. But we have never trained our minds as a society to be able to handle this information in a way like a good scientist should, which is to know that everything about the information is going to appeal to your biases. It's going to appeal to your preconceptions. And so you wind up with people who just, they just have feeds that, that are just big bubbles of things. And, you know, so it, what's, what's the future for that? I mean, we have a, a self-propagating bubble world where, you know, Clintons basically are, you know, Soros and, and Gates and, 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 and yeah, these are all creepy people, but, you know, I mean, you just can't embellish everything that needs to fit your storyline with all these particular players just to make it more exciting. Yeah, inside of what you're saying, Peter, thank you for uh, bringing it back to uh, responsibility hmm. and taking 100% taking responsibility for oneself. You know, it's so funny because ultimately what I've discovered in my own life is that so much of my own assertiveness has an, has an underlayment of insecurity. You know, so much of what I, I, I want to protest about is related to something I feel un, uncomfortable in, in my understanding of. And, and I think this is really the driving thing. People don't have, haven't really learned how to handle um, the stresses of something like this. You see, back in the old days, it was easier. Yeah. And you, got a, you got a newspaper every week and maybe that told you something, but that was that. The rest, of, and then you saw your friends twice a week. But here, we have a never, never ending barrage of all this. And here's the other side of the coin. It's to be so vulnerable in sharing that. 
It's not, mm -hmm. it's just absolutely vulnerable of you to, to share that. Well, you know, it's interesting because we do wind up with, um, we wind up with, with maybe, you know, when we're younger, it's a little easier to think we've got it all figured out. As you get older, you tend to temper that with um, just the, 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 well, the, the checklist of all the things you screwed up over the course of your life as, you, as it gets longer and longer. So you think to yourself, okay, it isn't that you want to be insecure. You just have to know that most things are, are going to fool you and, and you're going to want to go along with that subconsciously. So what are you going to do to basically resist that? And it, 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 it's an interesting story, you know, I, I, but it's, 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 a, it's illustrative. I, I had a lovely receptionist back maybe 10, 15 years ago, one of my offices. She was a middle-aged woman. She had, uh, I think, been a nun. And so she had spent a lot of her time sheltered. Mm -hmm. And then she left the nun place and then came out in the real world. And, but, you know, we had just beginning to do a computer system in the office. And she struggled with this all the time. And every time she struggled, her analysis was always the same. She said, doctor, there's something wrong with this computer. And I kept thinking to myself, and I said to her, you know, I, I program computers and yes, they sometimes do make mistakes, but most of the time it's, it's us, you know? And oh no, doctor, it's, it's, it's the computer. And so I would go through the error logs and she would be doing things like, you know, things you would do if you had a fabric typewriter, like use the lowercase L for the number one, like people used to do back in the 40s, you know, so she was, you know, she, she didn't understand that when a computer, you have to actually use the number one because that's, it means one. Um, and, but it was always the computer's fault. And it was always, uh, you know, but I always tried to get her to understand that that's that's a kind of a bad start let's let's go on the assumption because it's much easier to figure out what we do wrong than what the thing is that we're trying to give the blame to yeah and i think that's a really important thing for scientists it's an important thing for parents you know mm. to, to 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 make to develop somebody who can think critically um especially critically of yourself that's a that's a powerful thing it's an empowering uh, place to stand and to start start from I don't know if you wanted to talk about the blood type diet or, uh, <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting, um, I don't know. I feel a bit loquacious today. So please space to, to feel so. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's rare because I usually talk to people and they've got like, Oh, you're going to talk about this. It's like, okay, I'll talk about this, but you know, left to my own devices i can i can go off the rails i can tell you that <laughs> I'm, I'm along for the ride peter <laughs> uh, you know listen i i think the we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get through this and i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that our capacities like i wrote i wrote a post today it was kind of tongue-in-cheek and mm -hmm. it said uh I predict that we'll have 100 million ventilators by Thanksgiving. And I predict that by New Year's, we'll have 100 billion ventilators. And the point being that the other side of <laughs> underestimating what needs to be done 
it's you're just going to end the story by overestimating what needs to be done. Besides now, every company who can figure out how to make air go through a pipe is probably going to try to make a ventilator to get some government money. But the reality is this, you know, what, what did they say? You know, a stitch in time saves nine. So mm-hmm. now we're, we're going to be heading towards nine stitches because we didn't do that first stitch right. So by, I'm, I'm telling you, probably by beginning of next year, uh, you'll have not one vaccine, maybe you'll have 10 vaccines. You won't have 10, one antiviral. You'll have, every company will have their antiviral. You'll have, you know, the, the, there'll be such an overproduction of what needs to be done. And, and yet nobody will have learned the fundamental lesson, which was uh, to, to look for the incongruencies and to um, wait, uh, you know, to not, to not look, at something um, to just let it continue to, to progress until you form an opinion. As soon as you notice something, you should form an opinion of it. And then you, that opinion should be changeable based upon the introduction of new information. But what these people did is they waited to form an opinion so that the actual period of time, they thought of nothing, okay? Mm-hmm. When it easily could have been, I have an opinion, and you know, there's something weird here, but as the new evidence rolls in, I'm gonna keep changing that opinion. And that's, that's how probabilities are determined. Um, in, this, in this case, basically, like I said before, by the time we're done, there'll be a COVID industry that'll be like, you know, I don't know, the antiviral industry, the anti-infectious disease and anti-pandemic industry. I predict actually that we'll have a, it'll be like on the, uh, Dun and Bradstreet, it'll, it'll, it'll have its own Dow Jones uh, initials or something like that. But, you know, this is, this, and, and yet, you know, we look at these poor generations, you know, these millennials and stuff. Yeah. I'm an old fart, okay? I'm, a, I'm what you call a boomer, I guess, but I'm barely a boomer because the boomers are actually a little older than me, but I'm a sort of a late boomer. <laughs> the, 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 you, you look at, at, you know, yes, we've, we produce some amazing technology. We produce, uh, you know, some amazing capabilities. Uh, we've shrank the globe. We've uh, brought m- some many wonderful things to certain parts of the world. But what, what kind of world are we handing these kids? You know, and, 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 and the, the, you look and you think, you know, they're, they're so at this point unable to even know what their next move is because we have created such a maelstrom around them yeah you know and and i feel bad about that because you know you don't want to put a kid in a in a bubble you know and i never was a believer that everybody should get a trophy for participating or that you know the way we are sometimes with our kids now is very protective and that's not good either well how have you mitigated that with your your own children <laughs> when they were very small, I made them watch a cartoon called Ren and Stimpy, <laughs> where your teeth fall out, and when you look in a mirror, it cracks, and all sorts of weird things happen. And then we sort of went from there, uh, you know. And 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 I I I I try to have them to understand, you know, we we are uh, a household of readers. 
Thank you. Yes. You can barely get to the toilet in my house. You have to knock all the books away. Um, so the <laughs> like our house. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I love to read, and, and Martha loves to read, and we have kids who 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 they like knowledge, you know. And so, yeah. uh, and I'm sure that that'll be the same in your house and um, reading was always, even as a kid, it, for me, it was always, um, I don't know, it was always a, an ability to, to understand things. It was like a quick study, you know? I mean, you, you held up the Volkswagen, which was an interesting um, mm -hmm. uh, icon there. But, um, you know, Volkswagens are a lot like people. They, uh, there are a series of systems, you know, you have the engine, you have the transmission, you have the steering, you have the suspension, you have the electronics. And just like people, you know, they have cardiovascular systems, they have pulmonary system, immune system, musculoskeletal. And, and you know, how do you get something reconstituted to the point where it functions as a whole? Is that you, you, lar you largely move from system to system and you just make things well. And then at a certain point in time, you achieve a certain sort of synchronicity and then and then the car goes down the street and it turns and it stops and it starts and it you know breaks and all those things. And and people are like that too. And Volkswagens have always been the thing that appealed to me because the engineering was so beautiful. Mm. And, and 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 our body is just a you know I mean sometimes I just look and I think you know, you read some article and it says, you know, here, here's the, uh, this enzyme has a losses of phosphate and then it gets to a high energy thing and it activates this scaffold device and this scaffold device disassociates and releases these two things and these two things go on and turn on genes over here and turn off enzymes over there. And you think, holy smokes. I mean, you know, this is complicated stuff. And, and, and you know, there's so much at work. Life is a very, a very complicated thing, you know, and and yet you, you think about how it all holds together, you know. I mean, you could look at any part on a Volkswagen; you could spend an afternoon working on that part, you know. They're complicated parts, but then you put it back in, and you ride in the car for a while until the next thing breaks, right? Just this same mm -hmm. philosophy of anything else in life, and you you look at um, uh, people, you know, it's really kind of the same thing, you know. We, we want to break everybody's disease down to the molecular pathways and dysfunctional enzymes and all sorts of accumulated things that are resulting from that. But restoration of, of things on a general level is just as important, you know, that you can have a perfectly good orchestra, but if you, you, you know, if you don't have a conductor to tap on the lectern, nothing happens. You know, so well, you can have the best violin player in the world, the best contrabasso, the best, you know, glockenspiel, but until somebody shows up with the wand and starts actually start moving the hand, nothing happens. And yeah. it's the same way with with uh, with the concepts that that actually Ryan helped me with when we wrote the textbook on generative medicine. That there, there are things in complex systems that self-organize. They make things happen by the virtue of the fact that they're all there together. That's life. And we could we could work with that. That's that's something you can work with. You know, why do why do birds flock? You know, how why do termites make termite mounds? The, the individual termite doesn't have a little blueprint and he goes, oh this is where I put my little piece of mud. They they 
they do it because there's a kind of an intelligence that develops from the community. And this is just a generative behaviors where things jump category from the mechanistic to the, 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 the sort of epistemological, where, where, where the little parts now assume the characteristics and traits of the things that we recognize that that might be, might be life, might be us. So, I mean, again, I'll bore you with another story, but it kind of, kind of illustrates the point. When I was a kid, I did income tax for a very kind-hearted, maybe slightly dishonest accountant in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And his, most of his uh, clientele were little, little old Italian ladies who barely spoke English. That's from Little Italy. So he, he was like a, a kind of almost like a go-between, you know, because they, they had a kind of a, Europeans were certainly distrustful of, of governments and things. So they oftentimes in these communities, there was another person who was an important person. It was like the go-between. So he was more than an accountant, but he would also do their income tax for them when the year came out. But of course, most of these people never made any money because I mean, what, what did they get? They get maybe a social security check or they got a couple of bucks for babysitting somebody. So it was not a big deal, but he would always start off the interaction by essentially saying, Senora, how much do you want to pay? And then he would put that amount at the bottom of the income tax and he would work his way up to the top. So this is a surprisingly good algorithm for many things when we actually start asking ourselves, how are we gonna deal with complex problems? Is that sometimes we just have to ask ourselves, how much do we wanna pay? And then we figure out how to move up through the form to basically figure out how we get there. And it turns out that sometimes even in life or in medicine, we neglect how sometimes how simple that is. You know, how, how, how basic it is because we're so busy trying to figure out how to treat the disease or whatever. And, and, and this is really a problem because naturopaths know this better than most, most physicians that you have chronic disease and you have acute disease. And chronic disease is what really kills everybody. But acute disease is gets all the, it, it, it's much sexier. So it gets all the attention, you know, when the person yeah. comes in on the crash cart from the motorcycle in this injury and everybody like code stat this and code blue and code red and everything like that. But the poor person who's dying from metabolic syndrome with advanced, you know, Alzheimer's and also, and then, they, you know, this is nobody wants to have anything to do with that because it's a forlorn type thing. But the problem is one of interpretation because Think about the things that the conventional medical system is very good at. It's very good at acute disease. If you or I, God forbid, get into a, some kind of accident or something, these are the people that you don't want to go see a naturopath. You got oh, yeah. But uh, I have titanium but, in, my, uh, in my right leg, Peter. So yeah. I, yeah. But, yeah no, no, no naturopath put that titanium in your leg, <laughs> I can assure you. Uh, and then there was a story of the naturopath who only wanted to cut his hand and he only wanted to have a naturopath do the suturing. This was in Oregon, I believe. And then he, he drove like 90 miles and had a naturopath utterly butcher his hand with the sutures. I was like, why don't you just go to a hand surgeon? But the, the, the reality is that if you look at the medical system, though, it's entirely predicated based upon its strengths, which means that ultimately, when you look at how they treat chronic disease, they treat it as like an elongated version of an acute disease. So essentially, 
you, your, your chronic, chronic disease is something that if only we could do these following things, we could make those symptoms go away. And, and, and maybe that person would return to society, you know, as a complete whole. But in, in many aspects of chronic disease represents such a long story process of how you're not only lose function, but your body adjusts to the loss of that function over time. So it's not just simply that the function is lost, it's how the body gets ingrained with having to deal with the loss of the function. Yeah. So what, what would your message be uh, if, to, to people, how to collapse um, being so influenced by the system? Um, how would you, what was, what's your message for that person that's seeking sovereignty? Like over their own lives, over their own health, Inside of every one of us is a polymath um, or an autodidact. But that I mean is that we, we, we're, we like, we're tool makers. Mm -hmm. uh, we, engineers. Engineer. We're engineers. Uh, a polymath is just somebody who's good at lots of things. You know, maybe not great at any particular thing, but good at lots of things. And there's a greatness in being merely good at many things versus the greatness that comes from being great at one thing. So if you look at a polymath, a polymath has the broad spectrum of skills that allow them to bring a much bigger tool set to any given situation. So they evolve always the most nuanced, flexible solutions. We, we need to be more in the realm of cultivating those characteristics that make us who we are. Um, you know, I, I think we've, we've taken away a lot of the, the enjoyment in, in being awkward, you know? I mean, I tried to play golf and I'm old, so I'm never gonna play golf good. Matter of fact, I'm terrible at it. And this gets even worse because the people I play with fashion themselves good golfers, which they really aren't, they're, they're mediocre golfers, but uh, they, you know, they're all the ones who can figure out, oh, there, is it 275 yards to the hole or 279 yards to the hole? And it's like, I don't know, it's far away. Um, but you know, the, the reality is that we have awkward situations that are always around us. And just like me playing golf, we don't like to be awkward. We don't like to be put into awkward situations. And so I never really cultivated a taste for golf because I was too old to it. And I didn't particularly find myself in an environment where the learning curve made me feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you look at almost anything that's worth learning is associated with an awkward stage. And that awkward stage, you, you can't run from that. You, and people often do, they run from it because they pretend that they don't need to go deep because that they want to just get out of that awkward stage as fast as possible. So it's like, I don't, I, I, but if people just simply turn the telescope around and looked at the other end, they'd realize 
that the awkward part is the opportunity part. That that's, it, it's in the awkwardness that you betray who you are, even to yourself. And that you think, uh, I don't have the slightest idea what's going on here, you know, but I will learn. And what, what kind of a slap on the back is that to yourself to be able to say, I don't know how, I never, I never took a class on how to fix a Volkswagen. I never did. And I mean, I, I, I just had a Volkswagen as a kid. And, and then when I turned 50, they gave me a Volkswagen. So I started working on Volkswagens again. But the reality is this, it's all the same. It's just, we, 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 if, if we were just awkward and we could embrace that, then we could accept where our next move had to be. What was the next thing we had to learn to complete the chain in our understanding and broaden our awareness? Uh, but you know, so much time we get so caught up in being right, so caught up in, yes. in winning arguments. Looking good, yep. It's like you know, why don't, I mean, you know, one of the great, most liberating things I learned probably about the third or fourth year into practice, which I feel sorry for the people who I didn't learn it sooner. Yeah, hold hold that thought, Peter. I I really just want our audience to be with what you just said, like that that elegant opportunity that we have right now. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, and, and all I was going to say in light of, of what I had just said about being awkward was that the, the greatest thing I learned after two or three years of pretending that I didn't have to learn it was to simply be able to say in a, in a situation with a patient, I, I don't know, mm. you know, doesn't mean I won't find out. If it's knowable, I'll, I'll, I'll try and see if I can get a grip on it. But right now, I don't know, mm. you know. And, uh, you know, if only we had a bit more in the world of that, you know, maybe instead of just hurling things at each other and trying to win arguments. Yeah. There's a famous mathematician named Leibniz, you know, I think he invited a calculator, no, that was Newton, but he, he did something with math. And, and he said, you know, let us reason together. Let us calculate, you know, his idea was that they, they, our thoughts could be a type of calculus, that we could reason together. Isn't there a way that we can communicate at the end of which we would both have been enriched? And yet all I ever see is interactions where actually all we ever get is, is more teeth gnashing and all sorts of things. And it's like, why, why, why is it all about winning? Why, why does winning have to be so important all the time? You know, how, how is it that you would dismantle that? And uh, how, how is it that you want your legacy to live way beyond the time of your physical body mm. what um what are you putting in place nothing I'm sure that that happens <laughs> absolutely nothing okay you know i feel like ultimately uh there's a turkish proverb i believe it's a turkish proverb and i have close friends who are turkish who will tell me after this if indeed it was a turkish proverb but it says in order to understand your effect on the world you should stick your hand in a bucket of water the impression you remains that after you remove your hand is your effect on the world. <laughs> and ultimately the reality is that I'd like to think that um, I, I, my, 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 own, my own journey through life has, has been a very personal one. And I think the thing that made me maybe better at communicating about it than most people is I'm fundamentally an introvert. Mm -hmm. And usually introverts are great when it comes to public speaking because they talk to people like they're inside their heads. Uh, whereas extroverts always are about 
the the sort of external introverts are always telling you, you know, what, what's going on in their minds. And of course, most of us can relate to that because we have very similar aspects to how we, how we cogitate. Um, and I think ultimately with me in terms of any kind of a long-term effect, I don't know. I like to think, it's funny. I mean, that blood type diet thing, that, that just refuses to go away. I mean, my, that first book I wrote is still in hardcover. Yeah. And um, it's so funny. I was in a, uh, I had to go to a meeting at my publisher, which was Penguin. And we went down to their offices in New York and uh, went into the room. There was the publishers and all these people. But then all of a sudden people kept walking in, you know, from all sorts of parts of the company and just kind of hanging out. And then I said to my agent, well, you know, what was going on about that? She said, I have no idea. So, so I go ask. And she said, oh, no, they, they, they had never seen anybody who had ever sold that many books before. And it turns out that actually in, 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 in Penguin, Putnam, which is my, my master's uh, publishing wise, um, Eat Right is, I think, the eighth or seventh best selling book they've ever sold. And they have the King James Bible. So, you know, the, the reality is that the, and yet this thing never really had any kind of a tsunami of its sales. And the, the, the interesting thing is when it came out, they thought it was gonna sell like in New York and it was gonna sell in California. These were gonna be the two clusters where people were gonna buy the book. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen. And they were all freaking out because there were no book sales on the, on the two coasts. And then they were thinking, oh my God, this is, this is not gonna work. And then they started actually getting reports from their regional offices in, in Louisville, Kentucky and Springfield. Ohio and Duluth, Montana. And they were seeing all of a sudden sales were popping up in, in all these areas. And, and the reality was that um, when they went and actually had sent their people out to find out what was going on, they were finding out that pastors were getting up on Sunday morning and just saying to their congregation, go buy this book. <laughs> so it, it had, and then, and then later on the people, you know, the early adopters quote unquote caught on to it. So the, Everything about that whole experience, to be honest with you, was just so, it was, it was so anticlimactic that, you know, it's like people think that I, I was sitting in a basement with this like evil mind that I was going to write this bestseller, you know, and make a million dollars. And the reality was, is that the book was such an afterthought. I, I, I literally had no intention of writing it. I, I was asked to write it after I did a magazine interview. And somebody called me up and said, how would you like to write a book on health? And I said, okay, I've got this idea from my dad that blood type has an influence on your diet. And they said, oh, we don't want that. We just want a book on health. You know, could you write a little bit about general things? I said, no, I don't want to write that. So phone goes down, months go by, person calls me back up and says, we were having a conversation and I brought up that idea of yours and we went into books and print and there's nothing on the subject. So how'd you like to write a book on blood type? Mm. And I, and I, and every time I, I tell this to my friends who are actually writers, they just go ballistic because, you know, they just send out galleys and things and just get them returned unopened. And I'm telling them about how, you know, I, I got chased to write this book. I never, and then, and then I wrote the book and, and then, uh, all sorts of other things happened. Was, the book had every chance to have not, never occurred. So the last thing you could say about it was that it was premeditated. It certainly wasn't. Mm. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm really getting that. Um, you, <laughs> you really operate from a place of uh, uh, the integrity of your, your word and what is it, what, what it is uh, that is your, your truth. Like from a place of responsible research. 
And that really, that really is how your legacy, I mean, in, in print and how it lives through me and how it lives um, in my, my family, my son. So that's, that's legacy right there, Peter. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I just feel like at this point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid sixties. Um, you know, so, some of the, uh, Marcel Duchamp was a great um, Dadaist artist. And, and uh, as he got older, his, his work just got crazier and crazier. And, you know, so I feel like totally in step with that. I mean, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm long past wondering or caring about the consequences of what I come up with. Um, and uh, I, I think that, you know, yes, you would, you, they should be motivated by, by all, all the most altruistic of intentions. And, and, and uh, let me, t- let me tell you what I tell my students. I said, you know, there are gonna be times when you're dealing with people and you're not gonna know necessarily what to do. So do this. Think of the most noble thing you can do and do that. Think of the noblest thing you can and do that. And what's that? It could be something that has to do with being transparent or um, sometimes being brutally honest with somebody who needs to hear that. But on the other hand, being very, very soft and embracing to somebody who needs that. Nobility is, 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 uh, I define it as, as doing the thing you probably don't want to have to do, but, um, you, you know, deep down inside that that's what needs to get done. Yeah, thank you for being a noble character in this play and uh, really developing bodies of work that, you know, others have considered highly inflammatory yeah. and, and staying steadfast. And I, I get how, the, how it could feel that dark night of the soul being persecuted and um, ridiculed. And I, I can only imagine that. Thank you for staying steadfast through that and through, That's through very kind of you. openly wanting to be you know, awkward and continuing to learn and continuing to, to generate work that makes a difference for others. I, I, I think that uh, you know, we, we, all are, we all are very fortunate. Um, you know, we have uh, an, an ovum that gets shot out. Yeah. We get a couple of bazillion spermatozoa that are swimming upstream. Your parents had to have been randy at that particular moment. (laughs) The whole thing had to have occurred. The odds are not calculable mathematically. So why would anybody ever say that they weren't lucky? Because this is the very definition of luck. Existence is the (laughs) definition of luck. Um, So ultimately, when we look at that, Maybe if we thought of things maybe in that way, we'd, we'd, we'd spend a little bit more time um, taking full advantage of what was given to us by that extraordinarily lucky event. Yeah, I'm just, I'm thoroughly moved by that. <laughs> <laughs> I am, 
I'm telling you, I'm, sometimes I think about it, I said, you know, how did I get here? Uh, you know, and then at the end of it all, I mean, you know, you got to go nine months and, and then, you know, for the better part of three or four years, you're useless. You can't do anything. Right, right? I mean, and then, you know, and then after that, you're awarded the state, you know, so it's like, well, it, it, it's, it's, and then all of a sudden you get to be on your own and, um, you would think that there would have, there would be confetti coming out of your butt, you know, with all the possibilities that lay ahead of you, and 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 there's just some for so for so many people, their 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 experience at that moment um, seems as as if they they don't um, they don't feel that way, and 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 so much of that maybe was their developmental environment or whatever. But you know, it, that's a that's an experience. That's a that's a feeling that can be learned. I mean, to think, you know, how special that is. You know, yeah, it's, it's may, how special we all are. Yes, may humanity have the opportunity now to discover that newly about themselves and that that kind of magic. Um, Peter, I want to ask you a couple more questions before we we wrap up. And um, what are what are some of your sacred rituals between you and you and Martha, and um, and for yourself? that you, um, that you practice? Oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a rather disappointing interviewee at that point. I don't really have <laughs> any rituals. I, I have one ritual. I, uh, I have two cups of coffee and I go sit at the computer in the morning and try to write code. Um, and, and, and the, um, or, or whatever it is that I'm going to decide that is my top object of the day usually comes at that tip of that spear so yeah. for me it's like I've been I'm known for getting up really early so for instance it's not anything to see a social media post from me at 2 30 in the morning or three o'clock in the morning because I'm already up because I go to bed at some ridiculous time like seven o'clock or whatever but um I have I have great stillness at that point mm. you know I mean there is no there is no sound at three o'clock in the morning. It's three o'clock in the morning when it's night is full of sound, but three o'clock in the morning when it's morning is actually quite quiet. Mm. Um, and that's really my my only real, other than, um, you know, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I have a relatively uninteresting series of pursuits. I mean, they, they uh, so little of it, is is about me, you know. I mean, I I don't. I try to exercise. I try to eat good and all that kind of stuff. But there's not a whole lot of me that thinks about what me needs. Strangely mm. enough, you know. I just I don't know. Thank you for. I like to think. I, I, you you look at somebody like. Um, Well, look at your basic longevity people, right? All they want to do is, is defecate another day. That's their entire goal, okay? And then you look at somebody like Edgar Allan Poe, who looked like he was on death's door for half his life from consumption. And, and he wrote all those amazing novels and things, you know? So tell me, <laughs> what kind of life would you prefer to have? Where something where you were hanging on by a thread, but you had this massive amount of creativity just emanating from every orifice, or that the only thing you can think of is whether or not the next smoothie should be gluten-free in your life. You know, it, it, it's, you know it's, it's like, uh, for me, it's like, I'm not a, and I don't, listen, I don't, I don't debate that people can have great benefit from communing with nature. And I do all that stuff. And 
I, it's funny part is that, you know, I mean, I, I don't have any particular pursuits by design. I guess maybe I should get a few. <laughs> that, thank you for sharing that, Peter. That was um, actually very elegant. <laughs> uh, I was very struck by that. I'm struck by uh, your stories and the messages embedded in your stories <laughs> and that your, uh, your humility and your humor Everything is everything is a parable for me. It's like, you know, yeah. you know, you know and, and you know why? Because um, that's 30 years of clinical medicine is that actually mm -hmm. I find that you, you do better with people if you find that you have effective ways of, of, of metaphorically proving things or simplifying things or storytelling, you know. Uh, so I could be accused of oftentimes hauling off and storytelling at the oddest moments as I've done here in our, our talk. Uh, but I find them very effective clinically because um, they, they put people right in, in the story. You know, they put people right in the framework. So, and usually there's a, there's a take home message there someplace that they, they need to get. And that's usually the most efficient way of getting it to them because I'm not gonna sit there and take them through a cascade of 35 biomarkers to get to the point, you know? It's yeah. much better to talk about, you know, some, some something that alludes to that, but is much more easy to understand. So, uh, you know, yeah, storytelling is a big deal for, for me. So great, so great. Um, your, your sacred rituals with Martha as a, as a couple, as a partnership. There's only one thing I notice we've done every day we've been married and that's to act in the morning when either one of us has, has gotten up and the other one gets up. We act like we had never seen each other before. <laughs> so it's, it, there's an attractive thing there that's like, wow, you know, good to see you again. Yeah. You know what, um, are you a Star Trek fan? Uh, I should be, but I'm not. Okay, but the, um, there's an episode that I was watching when Captain Picard falls in love with Nella Darren, and it just struck me. Oh my gosh, that's Peter and Martha. Uh, <laughs> it's so distinct and unique and new, and just the way that he um, delighted and the way that he lit up, you know, in her presence and when talking about her, just as you did. I get I get irritable if if I I haven't uh, like if Martha's away for a couple of days I get very mm. irritable. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot. That really speaks a lot. Um, as a married couple and you work together and yeah, that's uh, that's it's it's uh, we're very we're very fortunate and like I said I think um, you know we 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 we've been together a very long time. We've obviously grown beyond recognition with those initial people that started this out, you know, as we started out, but um, we've kept pace, you know? So uh, even though we're no longer those same people, we are in relationship to each other, still those same people, despite the fact that we're very different now than we were then. Mm. Peter, is there a final parable or story? I love stories. Uh, like to leave us with. No, I have to think about that. Uh, Hold on, yeah. um, I'm gonna take a deep breath. 
exhale, just drop right into your body. Blink your eyes closed for just a moment. Hmm. Drop right into that stillness that you experience at three in the morning. That immaculate stillness and that joy. Breathe into that space. And ever so slowly, ever so gently, as you begin to blink your eyes open, speak from that space. What would you like to leave us with? Nothing. Get that. <laughs> ah, so many levels. I get that. Thank you. <laughs> I, had a, I had a wonderful time. I did as well. Oh yeah. my gosh. You're very funny. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, was was uh, very very freewheeling and very enjoyable and 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 maybe one some sometime we'll do it again. Yes, be lovely. That would be wonderful, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for being uh, that light leader, that kind of transcendent leader that really revolutionizes um, the way that we show up in the world. Well, that, thank you for saying that. I, I I've never gotten kind of able to deal with much of that so i'm gonna i'm gonna just accept it and thank you for that and uh, you know i'll try to live up to that going forward thank you thank you for gorgeously receiving that um i love you my family loves you same here, same here. thank you for doing this <laughs> yes and uh, i love to martha as well please I, I will be happy to convey that take care and take care, Dr. Stay safe. Take care peter <laughs>